Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We looked at it last week. I want to ask you a question. How many of you, uh, parents that is, have ever had your little boy or little girl with you going through a clothing department store, you know, aisle by aisle, and you're kind of searching through the clothes, and then you turn around and they're gone? Now, here's what's happened. They have climbed into that rack of clothes and the clothes that reach to the ground, so they're completely hidden, and they've been playing around hide-and-seek or whatever, and they've kind of turned themselves around, and in turning themselves around, got a little disoriented, and when they came out of the clothes, they were on the next aisle. But guess who they didn't see? They didn't see you. Where's mommy? Where's daddy? And they begin to panic. And you hear their little tiny voice in the next aisle beginning to cry. And they're, they're wandering around. Now their cry is getting frantic. Mommy, mommy. And you say, hon, I'm over here. And they're looking around and they can't see anybody. And what you do is you poke your head over and you say, I'm over here, sweetie. And you either go around the aisle, right? Or you, you part the clothing and then they come through. How many of you have ever felt that God was distant from you? And my question then is, who moved? Who moved? I want us to look at this because many times, and I'm going to investigate three possible answers to this as far as why God at times feels distant from us in our lives. And I'm going to focus on the last two as we get into the word. But why is it that sometimes God feels so far from us? Now, can I just be very frank with you that the first reason why we can feel this way is just simply emotions. Emotions. Have you ever had a friend come up to you? And they say, I don't know what's going on, but I just feel like this disconnect with you. And, you know, I don't feel close to you anymore. And, and nothing has happened except maybe in their lives. They just feel a certain way. And you say, I'm sorry, I'm totally good. I, I love you. You're like my best friend. Nothing's happened here. And you just begin to reassure them of your love for them. Oh, okay, okay, I, I was just checking. You know, and sometimes our feeling of being distant from God is just the stress or lack of sleep. It is just simply emotions. Now, the second reason why it may feel as if God is distant from us is because we have chosen to believe certain lies we're going to get into those, and it pulls our emotions. Because listen to me, what you believe determines how you feel, what you, um, what you, how you feel, what you speak, and how you behave, how you act. That flows from what you believe. So truth is absolutely foundational if we are to grasp this concept of our intimacy with God. So we've already looked at, number one, that God, sometimes that God is not distant from us whatsoever, and we are not distant from him. It is just an emotion that we're experiencing. And can I just share with you on this? In worship, where it is perhaps the greatest opportunity for us to connect with God, he gives us instruction 
how we are to worship him. And I'll be honest with you, I grew up in a very traditional church, and if you were to look on the bulletin, you will see, as you open the page, certain ways in which scripture says God speaks to us as his bride, as the, as the, as to us who, in whom Jesus has poured out his affection. And he says, I want you to worship me like this. And so you'll see a list of things in which God invites us to worship him. Now, because of tradition, we have, for the most part, the church of Jesus has discarded these things, and we have chosen to follow a cultural, that is, the church has developed a culture, and that culture has dictated to us how we should worship rather than the word of God. But when we worship, Worship is meant to be demonstrative. It's meant to engage us, not just our mouth and not just our mind, but our body and spirit as well. And so when we worship, Scripture tells us, lift your hands, bow down before him, kneel before the Lord your maker, shout before the Lord. That's even found in the book of Revelation, New Testament. I'm saying these things because sometimes God wants us to engage in worship and it is very physical because sometimes that physicality helps us with our emotions. We're emotional creatures and made in the image of God, which means God has emotions, feelings, and this is how he has instructed us. Okay, so the second thing then is because sometimes we believe lies and those lies affect our walk with Christ. They affect our emotions. They affect, they affect us and, and not just uh, what we, it, it does not affect the actual distance between God and us, but it does affect our emotions because we have chosen to believe certain lies. Now, the third reason, I'm not going to get into it too much except to the end, I believe, I say I believe because I've got only 30 minutes left. And that is, we look in the book of Revelation, if we were to look at chapter 3, if, so go ahead and do that. He says today, so that none of you may be hard, excuse me, <laughs> but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see, sin is deceitful. We step into sin, it, it deceives us, and before you know it, it begins to harden our hearts. And in the previous verse, it says it begins to lead us astray. And he says, careful, don't go down that road. Don't allow sin to deceive you and move you down this road towards the hardening of your heart because you do not want to have a heart like the Moses generation that did not enter the rest because they had a sinful, unbelieving heart. And so that would be the third reason. So what I'm going to, I'm just going to make this statement. Feelings are a poor thermometer. Truth is an excellent thermostat. Now let me explain that, and then we're going to move into this chapter. Our feelings are not very good indicators with regard to how life is going. Sometimes they are, but many times they are not. They can fool us. They can deceive us. We wake up in the morning, and for whatever reason, we feel distant from God. And the truth is, we are not. God has not moved. I have not moved. I am still seeking after God. I love him. I spend time in the word, but I just feel distant. And, and, and that is just simply a feeling. It, it is based uh, 
physiologically, hormones or, or just the stress that we're under or the fact that you've been fasting for seven days, hello, or whatever it is, and, and it is simply rooted in that. So feelings are a really poor indicator of reality. They just are. They're fickle. But truth, and this is what we're going to get into today, truth is an excellent thermostat. You know what the difference between a thermometer and thermostat? A thermometer just indicates what the atmosphere is like in the room, but the thermostat does what? It actually changes the temperature, the atmosphere, if you will, in the room. Truth will do that. When we cling on to truth, it will impact us. It will change us, including our feelings. But again, feelings, they're poor thermometers. They're poor indicators. But truth, which is what we're going to look at, that is an amazing thermostat. It will change you. So let's get into the truth. I want us to, the Lord has just really laid on my heart to go back and revisit some of these things and springboard into the other half of the sermon. So the first part is going to be a review. And we're going to get into it a little bit more because I think that we need to, you know, as Paul says in Philippians 3, um, I need to remind you of these things and it's no trouble for me to do that. All right, I think I need to remind us of some of these things about the, the truth of Jesus. And we see this back in chapter 4, the last few verses, actually verses 15 to 18. It says here, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Church, I want you to say that with me. Confidence. I'm sorry, but how do we approach the throne of grace with confidence? We need to revisit that. That's what we're going to do, actually, in a moment after I read it. We, we approach the throne of grace with confidence. Highlight that. Underline it. Put a box or a circle around it. I want it to jump out. When you're reading this passage, next time God brings you through excuse me, Hebrews 4, I want that word to jump at you, out at you. Confidence. It's used four times in the book of Hebrews. So that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, here is a truth a reality check in our church, God is mending and healing broken hearts. He's going to do that with truth. When we choose to believe it and stand on it and not be moved from it, because truth will change you. And so he invites us not just to believe the truth, but to walk in the truth, right, church? We walk in the truth. We follow it. We stand on it and we follow it. We are not to be moved from that truth. And that truth we found in two different, it came to us in, in two different uh, focuses or foci. And that is number one, Jesus is the sacrifice and Jesus is the sacrificer. As the sacrificer, Jesus is our great high priest. He's the one who stands before God, and he has ministered to us. Now, here's the interesting thing. The, the high priest or the priest in the Old Testament would stand regularly, you know, before the brazen altar, before the, uh, the 
the altar of incense. They would stand regularly. And in chapter 10, there is an interesting contrast of the priest that would stand before God regularly because these, these sacrifices could never take away or wash away sins. They were simply shadows of the ultimate sacrifice found in Christ. Now, Jesus himself sits at the right hand of God, a clear indication that his sacrifice was once and for all, all right? We use this word propitiation. And another word, expiation. Oh my goodness, what is that? Who on earth would just have a mind to create such complicated sounding words, right? So I'm just going to kind of really simplify it as I have. But expiation simply means sacrifice that washes away. It removes the sins, and God forgives us. Propitiation, and don't ask me to spell that, but propitiation is the fact that Jesus' sacrifice, he actually took upon himself our sins, and as 2 Corinthians says, he who knew no sin, and, and I don't get this, church. I, I really don't, and I think it's because just plainly I'm not God, and I can't understand it, but Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for me. He became sin for me. And as a result, it says the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So he was punished for me. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? Uh, maybe you've heard sermons or a series of sermons, the seven last words of Jesus. And one of those last words were Jesus hanging on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus was not waxing eloquent or poetic, though he was quoting from Psalm 22.1. There is a reality there that the father, as he is placing the sins of the world on his son Jesus and punishing him for you and for me, this is the concept of expiation. Jesus was punished in my place. The father turned away, and abandoned his son on the cross. We might even use the term rejected, but please understand that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by the Father, so I want to be cautious using that word. But he didn't just turn his back. He abandoned his son, God, because sin can never be in the presence of God. Now, I'm not going to try and explain to you how God the Son, in becoming sin for us, was abandoned by God the Father. I don't get that. But that is what Scripture teaches me. And maybe one day I'll have a little bit better understanding. That will probably be on in heaven. But the truth is, I don't get that. But here's the deal. Jesus experienced rejection and distance from the Father for you, so that, now listen to this, so that he can truly promise you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There is no sin that is so grievous and heinous that God would ever look at you and say, can't deal with that one, and walk away. There is not one sin in which that will ever happen to you. 
Now, this, this has a lot to do with when we wake up in the morning, we feel distant from God, etc. The truth is God hasn't moved. And we know this. This is the truth, church. Jesus experienced rejection, abandonment, if that's a better word that fits, for you. So that you would never, ever, 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 ever experience that for yourself. That's God's promise. Why? Because he is my propitiation. Now, if you have the NIV, you do not read that word in this passage. You read atonement or atoning sacrifice, and that's used in in the book of Hebrews a couple of times. The consequence of this is that God is no longer angry with us. Jesus, by that sacrifice, satisfied the just wrath of God. When you sin, God, listen now, many Christians have never heard this truth before. They have read so many passages in the Old Testament without realizing just how much Christ has satisfied the wrath of God. But that once we become Christians, should we sin, God is never angry with us. He's never angry. Some of you, you may never heard that truth before. But this is wrapped up in the very fact that Jesus' sacrifice changed, if you will, the disposition of God toward us. So that his, he rejoices over us with singing. He pursues us with relentless love. He forgives so freely. He is a God that has fallen in love with his bride and will never, ever, ever reject her. That bride is you and me. Guys, I'm sorry. That's, that is the metaphor scripture uses for us, okay? Bride. Live with it. Because there is in that, there is this sense of romance and pursuit that Jesus has for his church, his bride. And so consequently, Jesus has satisfied this just wrath of God, and he will never pour out that wrath upon his followers, his believers. Now, Scripture does say that he is grieved. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And I can remember when so many times when my, when my kids disobeyed on a perfect day, okay, on a perfect day for me, I wouldn't get angry with them. My heart would grieve them because I know that if this attitude, this behavior does not change, it will impact how they relate with other people, how others relate with, there's going to be consequences to this, and my heart is grieved. And, I, and, and there's, there's a heart that they have right now that is opposed to their dad, and it's self-willed, and it says, you know what, dad? I think I'm going to do what I want to do and not what you want to do. Now, they don't, do, they, well, Maybe sometimes they do actually say it. They usually don't, but that's the heart. And, and my heart then is, on a good day, on a perfect day, my heart is simply grieved. You see, that's the heart of God. And, and my heart, when I discipline my child, would not be one of anger, but one of grief. Because I'm now wanting my child's heart to change.
I want us now to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Got about 15, 20 minutes here. And we see a very similar layout, a very similar wording to what I just read you. So we come across a different concept. I don't want to spend the rest of our time on that concept. By the way, I didn't touch on Jesus as high priest. My apologies in that, in that passage. Um, that is what I spent the two weeks on, and that is that Jesus, because of what he has gone through, because of what he suffered in his temptation, makes him a sympathetic high priest. We read these same concepts. Jesus says sacrifice and sacrificer right here, chapter 10, verse 19. Follow me as I read 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, because he's the sacrifice, understand, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have, number two, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's what he's inviting us to do. Follow me now. He says this, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. There, there is so much that's contained in these few verses and, and I, I feel like God is just saying, Mike, just extract this one concept. Before I do that, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, which of course is grounded in truth, for he who promised is faithful. Get grounded in truth. So here's the truth. The truth is that as a result of this confidence, this, we have this assurance of faith, he is asking, he is telling us that there is absolutely no need to have a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience. And the reason for this is because that guilt has been dealt with on the cross. Now, there are two ways to understand guilt. Number one, let's say I go into my house and I leave the door open and Shine comes to me and says, Dad, or, or, or not, not Dad, but she says, who left the door open? The cat just got out. That, unfortunately, has been a reoccurring problem in our house. This new cat that we have, a few months old, just loves to dart outside. And I would have to say, oh, it was me, guilty as charged. And all I'm doing by saying I'm guilty is I'm the one who did it. Now, in that sense, Christians, we sin. In that sense, we're guilty. But that is not the sense in which this word guilty is used in this verse. Actually, the word conscience is used. And it means a guilty conscience, a conscience that condemns us, a conscience that's not clear, a conscience that feels this weight, this cloud that follows around with us. It's kind of like in that Peanuts um, cartoon. W what's, his, what's his name? The 
pig pen, okay? And everywhere he goes, it's like it stirs up dirt. And we can kind of feel like that we're always dirty. We can kind of feel like this heavy cloud over us. Do you follow what I'm saying here, church? And, and we can feel as if we're just, we're distant from God. What is going on? What is up? What have I done? And we repent and we repent and, and we're just, well, what's going on here? And I'm going to suggest to you that it is it is, it's either just emotional or if you have repented, then there is a problem that you are dealing with concerning truth. Truth. Because your emotions are going to flow from how you embrace truth. So, guilty conscience, we have this because we, at some point we have failed to grasp the truth of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Now, I realize that in our day, there is what's commonly called the hyper-grace movement. That's not their term. They call it a grace reformation. I would venture to say that there are some elements that are good, such as the fact that God is no longer angry with us. That was actually a prophecy in Isaiah. I will no longer be angry with you, never again, referring to the new covenant, because Obviously, because of Christ's, what, atoning sacrifice. Um, and But it, within this movement, they then go on to say, well, you don't ever now, since Jesus died for all of your sins, you never need to confess your sins, and you never need to repent of your sins. Because if Jesus died for your sins, then they're all taken away. So what sins would you be confessing that he needs to forgive? Do you see what? Do you see the, where they're going with this? Now the only problem with this is that there are scripture passages that still tell us to confess. First John one nine, confess your if if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is given to believers. It also says in Revelation 2.5, it says concerning those who have forsaken their first love, they've moved away, they've been pursuing the world, and he's calling them back to their first love, who's Jesus, and he says, repent and do the things you did at first. Wait a second, to do the things you did, that means that they must be followers of Jesus, and the passion and the pursuit of Christ that they had in the beginning is what they're now being called back to. To do that, he says, repent and do the things you did at first. Scripture's clear. We confess our sins, and we repent to him. And of course, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. I think what happens here, church, is that I'm going to come back to that concept of repenting, but I think what happens when we are feeling distant from God and we are failing to grasp these truths, we feel like such failures and I am going to encourage you, if Jesus has truly died for your sins, he is the sin bearer. And, and the reason why I mention this is because many times we still feel the weight of the sin upon us. We view ourselves as sinners. We view ourselves as 
needing to be punished for this sin and that maybe the sin is so grievous, how could God forgive us? Or maybe I need to say the Lord's Prayer 10 times or genuflect or whatever it is, or maybe I need to pray more or maybe I need to fast more, then God will forgive me. Where is that in Scripture? We're seeing ourselves as the sin bearer. But Jesus says, well, here's what I encourage you to do. When you sin, in this process of repentance and confessing, we are now seeing that sin on Jesus. We are not seeing that sin on Mike Curtis anymore. We're seeing that sin on Jesus. He has paid for it. There are no strings attached. His love for me has not diminished one iota. He continues to pursue me with this relentless love. And I walk in that forgiveness every day that is secured for me at the cross. We need to be able to see that Jesus truly has taken care of that sin. It's washed away, gone, forever. Instead of seeing our sin in association with ourselves, we need to see it in association with Christ because we are in, when we approach God cowering, feeling guilt or shame, maybe even unworthy, hesitant, afraid, you see, we have failed to grasp this truth of Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice. He became sin for us, never to leave us again. You see, when I repent as an unbeliever, as an unbeliever, when I was 14 years of age, grew up in the church, at age 14, it's like it finally dawned on me what Jesus has done for me, and, and, and it revolutionized my thinking, and I repented. And what that did is it changed the disposition of God toward me because I was, Scripture says, in Ephesians 2, I, I was by nature an object of his wrath. Do you realize that before you came to Christ, God's wrath rested on you? When you came to Christ, that wrath was lifted because the sin had been paid for, taken care of. And so consequently, when I repent, the disposition, God's attitude towards me has changed. And repentance then opens me up to receive God's grace. He pours that grace into me and changes who I am. As a believer then, now follow me, as a believer, it's different. God's attitude towards me has not changed. God's attitude towards me is not one of anger or wrath. God's disposition towards me is one of a pursuing lover, of one who, who as a father loves me eternally. And it's okay to call Jesus Father. Remember Isaiah 9? He's the everlasting Father. So it's okay for me to say that, all right? So as a father, he loves me and pursues me. So that attitude is not changed. When I repent, it doesn't change his disposition towards me. When I repent, it changes my heart. Now, I want you to, I want you to imagine this with me. So here I am. I, I am a, a pursuer of Jesus Christ. I love him. I'm following after him. And I get distracted by something in the world, and I pursue it. And rather than finding my satisfaction 
in Christ, I am now seeking my satisfaction in this thing. Sin of some sort. And what I am doing, and I'm going to use my hands to demonstrate this, I am pursuing this thing of the world, and God is calling me, and I'm pursuing it, and I grasp a hold of it, and I taste it, and I realize just how sour and bitter sin really is, and I realize, wow, sin deceived me. You see, that's the nature of sin. It will deceive you. And so I then find myself, having sinned, I say, God please forgive me. And at that moment of pursuing this object of my affection, I now turn to God and I say, Father, forgive me. Now, God has not changed his position. He constantly is extending his love and his grace to me. When he sees me going this way, he doesn't say, forget you and walk away. You know, when I heard my daughter's voice on the other side of the aisle, I didn't get offended and say, fine, have a good day and walk away. The manager of the store will call me, who is the father or mother of this young child and describe them. I say, I guess that's me before I got out the front door, right? You know, God doesn't treat us this way. So here I am, I am pursuing this thing of my affections, and I realize, man, that was so deceiving. And I turn to God, who the whole while is, ex- is just following after me, with his arms extended, ready to pour out grace. But because of my stubbornness, he cannot. And do you remember why? Because God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And that is the nature of repentance as a believer. In pursuing this with extended arms, I repent and I do this and I receive his grace. That is all that has changed when I repent. And now God pours out his grace upon me. He's been pursuing me the whole time. When I heard my child's voice on the other side and I'm calling to them and they're frantic and they're screaming and they can't hear my voice, I follow them. And finally, you know, because it's such a long rack of, of clothing, I part the clothes and I see them and they look at me and they run to me with arms open wide and they embrace me. And then they ask, Daddy, where did you go? <laughs> Nowhere. You see, right then and there, it, it, God does not leave us. God does not forsake us. Was that child feeling absolutely distant? Oh, sure. Daddy, where did you go? That would be the first question that my daughter would ask me. Daddy, where did you go? Now, in the clothing rack, she had just gotten turned around and thought she was stepping into the aisle where she had been before, but she didn't. She stepped into the next aisle. Daddy, where did you go? I've been here all along, sweetie. And I hug her, and I hold on to her. And so now, the author of Hebrews says, draw near to God. We have this confidence, church, that God is faithful. He is not a liar. 
He pursues us with a relentless love. If we ever feel distant from us, it is not because he moved, but because we did. And many times, nobody has moved. I have just chosen to believe a lie. Now, do you remember when I walked you through last week? Not Jesus did not go through all of the life experiences that we have but he has been through all of the temptations that we have. See, life experiences stirs up questions and maybe even doubts within us, stirs up questions and we're wondering, okay, God, where are you in this situation? And I use the example of, Je of Jesus when he lost his, his father, Joseph, because he's human and he had been trained up as a carpenter and had spent hours and hours in that carpenter's um, uh, shop with him and they bonded. I mean, how else? of course he would. He loved his dad. When his dad passed away, and it appears he did so before he entered ministry, would it not seem right that Jesus would say, God, I, I don't understand. Father, why, why is this? Now, it's possible that the father revealed to him a reason. We don't know. But Jesus asked the question. It says Jesus suffered in his temptation. It doesn't mean he just kind of, okay, no, mm, no. That's not the type of suffering. Suffering, it was emotional. for When Jesus went through temptation because of his life experiences and he asked these questions, it was emotional. It hurt. And I suggested to you perhaps in John 11 when he sees Lazarus and he's dead, he knows he's going to raise, raise Lazarus from the dead, but yet on two occasions he weeps. Would it not be consistent with him being human that he would think, man, I can remember when I lost my dad and here they, they just lost their closest friend, their brother the ache and the pain that they're experiencing because of sin in this world, this broken world. And Jesus understood this, and so he's a sympathetic high priest. And now, Jesus is pursuing us. He loves us relentlessly. He is not the one who has moved. We are even if it means that we have chosen to embrace lies. Because in the life experience that causes these questions and the temptation, we can easily come out saying, you know what, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God isn't as faithful as he says he is. Maybe, maybe the Bible is just trumped up religious truth to make me feel good. Can I just tell you, what I read in this book right here is absolute truth. It is absolute truth that we do serve a faithful God. And if we are feeling distant, it is never because God has moved, that God has somehow abandoned us. Jesus took that abandonment with him on the cross. And so that he can truly say, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the ends of the earth, Matthew 28, 21. I'm going to ask you this morning. Do you feel distant from God? Do you feel as if God is far away? I'm going to suggest to you that something is going on. It may be that you are sitting here this morning and it is because you, and you know this, you're running from him. 
your heart by the deceptiveness of sin has been lured and you're still doing this, trying to find your satisfaction in sin. And God the whole while is pursuing you with arms open, ready to pour out grace. And yet in your stubbornness, you continue to pursue this sin. And he says, careful, that will lead you astray. It will harden your heart. And I'm just going to challenge you. If that is you this morning, my friend, please, as a follower of Jesus, turn to him right now. Stop gazing on that which will not satisfy ever. It's a mirage. And with arms open wide now, turn to him and receive everything that he has for you. He's not left you. God has not moved. When the son in the parable of the lost son made this choice, and he kind of got the truth like halfway so that at least led him back to his father. At least maybe he'll accept me as a, as a slave rather than a son. When he came back to the father, the father ran to him. He didn't wait for the son with arms crossed, eyebrows furled. Yeah, we, you think you're going to come back and beg for coming back into my home? Look, you had it so good. You think I'm going to let you have all of this? Forget it. That's not what he said. He ran to him, threw his arms around him, kissed him. Guys, does that make you feel uncomfortable? Kissed him and wept over him. That is the heart of the God that pursues us with, opens, with opened arms. And so if you are running from him, turn to him today. But if you are just simply feeling distant, church, I want to challenge you. Stand firm on the truth of what Jesus has done for you. That guilt, the devil wants to use that guilt to try and make you feel distant from him and try and push you away from God. Have you ever felt that way? And, and just because of how you felt, you began to walk away and drift away? So I'm going to call you back. I want to call you back to the truth because it says right there in that, in that verse, it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is, what church? He is faithful. He is faithful to you. And he will never change. Can you stand with me? We just dim the lights right now. I realize for many of us, and even this room here, but... It is so easy for us to wander off like little kids. We get mixed up in that rack of clothes and we step out on the wrong aisle and we wonder, God, where are you? And as a good dad, I would just say, sweetheart, just follow my voice. Can you hear me? And in the midst of her screaming, there were times in which they couldn't see this happened more than once. We would, she couldn't hear me. Follow my voice, but I pursued them. And the Father today is pursuing you. And he's, he's extending his grace and he's extending his love. And so I'm just simply saying, abandon those lies that you felt too comfortable yesterday. Leave them and turn to him and receive this relentless, pursuing love of God.
your truth is mightier than the waves of the ocean pounding on the shore. It is more ferocious than any hurricane and more powerful than any tornado. Your truth stands far above all else. And God, we are just simply saying today, we're making a choice to stand on that truth. To come the storms of life, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the waves pounding on this foundation, I will not be moved. Because I stand on that rock of truth that will not My God is faithful. He is faithful to his word. Father, would you minister beyond these feeble words of mine? Oh God, please. And by the power of your spirit, take your truth right now and remove these lies that we have been fooled into believing and embracing and even pursuing. truth with your love then do this God but open our hearts up and pour into us that grace that massages our heart it's like when that daddy picks up that little girl that's sobbing and holds him close to his chest he says I'm stubbornness you still pursued me. Thank you that when I turned away and I pursued things of the world as a follower of Jesus, you still loved me. 